All right, everybody. Thanks for waiting. Good to see you. Welcome back. Glad you're here. Hey, I said this a few weeks ago to you, and I'm just going to reiterate it. If you would ever like to move up during intermission, maybe you don't want to do that, but if you ever want to do that, you're welcome to do so. I know sometimes you guys get here a little later maybe than you meant to, and you wind up stuck in the back or up in the balcony, and maybe that's where you want to sit. That's totally fine. But if you ever want to move up, you're welcome to do that. Uh, Our kids are not coming back into the service, for those of you who are new and may not know exactly how this works. Uh, This morning, we're going to kick things off in Mark chapter 3 again. I know I told you a week ago that we would be moving into Mark chapter 4, but we're going to do things a little bit differently today, hence the chairs on stage. You might have noticed that. You might not have. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute, what that is and what we're going to be doing. Uh, But we're going to start in Mark 3. We're going to take a very natural uh, kind of transition out of the text we were in last week into a discussion about the local church what a church is, what it's not, what it's for, and what God has done to provide for churches so that they can be healthy, so that they can actually complete the mission, actually do the kinds of things that Jesus said to do. I'm sure many of you have at least known of churches, maybe you've even been part of one in the past, where uh, people talked like they were getting a lot done in Jesus' name, but not a lot was happening. Well, some of the things we're going to talk about today will help you understand, especially if you're new to True North, uh, what we think the X factors are, what we think the, the, the strengths are of this church based on God's model in Scripture that have allowed us to be effective. So Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31, we'll read those last five verses again. Jesus uh, is interacting with a group of people as well as his family. This is how uh, Mark recalls things happening. This is verse 31. Jesus' mother and his brothers came to Capernaum, where Jesus was staying. And standing outside, they sent word to him. Remember, there's a big crowd around Jesus, so they sort of have to play telephone, where they pass the message up through the crowd, into the disciples, into the apostles, and then eventually to Jesus himself. Uh, And this was the message that they wanted him to come out. They were summoning him so they could speak to him. Verse 32. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and the crowd said to him, Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And so he answered the crowd, and he said, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him in a circle, he said to them, and if you remember Matthew's version, Jesus actually points to the disciples and says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, a week ago, in order to make sense of what Jesus was talking about, uh, especially on a day like Mother's Day, where we had the, the unique challenge of navigating Jesus being maybe a little bit less than Uh, friendly with his mom uh, on a day like Mother's Day, we said some things. We we had to make a handful of statements to help us navigate what in the world Jesus is talking about. What does he mean? And so they were the following. First, we said that Jesus is not saying that your family of origin is meaningless. Now, the reason I'm reiterating these points to you today is we're going to dig back down into this concept that Jesus is making a new family, that he has done that already. And that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus' life and death and resurrection are real and that they apply to you by faith that you have in Jesus to save you from yourself and to save you from all the things that are wrong with you and the world, if you do that, then you become added into a new kind of family. And it can be easy when that happens to think that maybe Jesus is asking you to disregard or abandon or walk away from your own biological family or what you might call your family of origin. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is that the kingdom of God is a better and more permanent family for you. In all of the ways that your biological family or your family of origin has failed you, will fail you, Jesus won't. He can't. He never has. 
And so Jesus is not trying to say, pick me one or the other, you can only have one, and so make your choice. He's saying, God gave you to a biological family, that brings with it baggage, good, bad, ugly, now there's a new kind of family that's more permanent, and it's eternal, it's better for you. It does all kinds of things for you that your own biological family cannot do. And so Jesus is now opening the gate into that kind of family, and you do have a choice. You don't get to pick your biological mom and dad, but you do get to decide whether you want to be in or stay out of God's family. So we took that uh, idea that Jesus is presenting a new sort of eternal family, and we tried to draw some implications. And these were the two big ideas out of that point. One was that obedience is central to our eternal family. I tried to clarify for you a week ago that obedience is not the way that you get into God's family. That's not at all what I'm saying. That would be uh, running opposite to what the gospel tells us is true about God's grace and mercy. However, obedience to God the Father is an indicator. It's the most prominent family trait. Maybe in your family everybody has big noses or they're not that tall or their hair falls out before they turn 30. In God's family, the characteristics that we all have are obedience characteristics to God, that we want to pray that we want to be in God's word, that we desire to be shaped and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not that we can do that work in God's place, but that we willingly work with him, that we are excited to open our lives up and expose and bear the things that may be dark within us, the things that may be scary or shameful, so that God can work on those things. Jesus says that the kind of people who want to obey God, his Father, that those people play the role of mother and brother and sister to him, that they are a new family. And then the other side of the coin is just as true as that point, that disobedience disintegrates, it pulls apart, it rips and tears at both our eternal families, but even our biological families. Because God's law is, in a sense, impressed upon all of us by way of our conscience and the way that the world is supposed to work, uh, all of us mostly know some sense of good and evil, and therefore, even if we don't know Jesus, even if we've never heard the Bible preached, we don't know anything about church or the Holy Spirit or God at all, all of us are somewhat accountable to do what's right for and to one another. And when we don't do that, it rips our families apart. But that's not just true for our biological families. When and where our church families choose to be disobedient, we ought not be surprised when we find our eternal family begin to pull apart and rip at the seams. Because Jesus says, the way that you will know one another is by your love for one another. And love for one another is the simplest summary of what it means to follow God's law, to do what the Bible says, is to esteem God highly, to love and worship him, and then as a result, to have love for one another. Jesus said, that's it. That's going to be your calling card. That's the only billboard that will ever be winsome to anybody anywhere in the world when it comes to the church, is that they'll look at you and they'll see a kind of love, a kind of joy, a kind of hope that doesn't make any sense and doesn't fit into the way that the rest of the world works. So what is Jesus saying in Mark chapter 3? In the entirety of the chapter, I think his big point is that he's doing something new. He's building something new. He's using types and categories that we understand, like family. We all have a family. We have immediate thoughts that come to mind when someone says the word family to us. But what Jesus has in mind when he talks about family is pretty different from what we have in mind. It's stronger. It's better. It's more loyal. It's more satisfying. It's safer for us. But in some ways, it's also more challenging because it's not passive, it's active. And it requires us to be bold and to confront one another where we've been wronged, but to do so with the intention of seeing the other person repent and be saved and be changed. So Jesus is trying to communicate that he's not just building a following. He is a rabbi in the ancient Near Eastern world, but he's not just a rabbi in the ancient Near Eastern world. He's creating more than just a social movement. He is founding a new 
family. A family that was meant to be uniquely known by its obedience to God in the form of love for one another. Now, of the metaphors that exist in the New Testament, there are really three that primarily deal with what we would call the church, the group of people that you're sitting among right now. I'm talking local churches, okay? So there's a church here. There's lots of churches all over the city. Each of them are local manifestations or embodiments of what the Bible refers to as the church. There's kind of the global church. It's all the Christians everywhere doing our best to get along. We're going to spend eternity together. And then there are local churches that have all kinds of distinctives and flavors that are different from one another. Uh, Obviously, people have preferences, and so we tend to find churches that sort of meet our expectations for what a church should or shouldn't be. But even when we disagree on secondary or tertiary issues, there are many churches that are full of people who do love Jesus and want to do his will. They just might do it a little bit differently from each other. The way the New Testament describes those churches is using figurative language, an analogy or a metaphor, and there are really three primary ways that the Bible does that. First, the New Testament speaks in terms of a family or a household. Uh, We've seen the last week, today as well, the last two weeks, that the end of Mark chapter 3 and again in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus uses that language, right? He says, this is my new family. These group of people who are obedient to God the Father who've been saved by me, they're going to be a new kind of family in my name. But more than that, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes that we are no longer strangers. We're not aliens, not that we come from another planet, but that we don't have a home to call our own. But now we have become fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That this isn't just a business organization and it's not a social club, it's a family, it's a household. In his letter to Timothy, uh, the fifth chapter, the first verse of 1 Timothy, Paul writes that we ought not rebuke an older person, but encourage them in the same way that we would a father or a mother. We ought to rebuke younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and to do that in all purity. Again, capitalizing on and leveraging the idea of a family, that we're supposed to be a family to one another. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes that Christ is faithful over God's household as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in the hope that we have in Jesus. And then finally, Peter writes to the diaspora of the Jewish churches in 1 Peter 4 that the time has come for judgment to begin at the household of God, meaning all of the churches everywhere across the world are considered one household with God as Father over all. The second metaphor that the New Testament tends to use is that of a temple. Uh, There's scriptures that say things like, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, regarding the way that you build a temple. So there's a construction metaphor for you, that Jesus has to be the concrete slab that goes in the ground before you can put any structure up on top of him that's going to last or that's going to be worth anything. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, a construction metaphor, the idea that there's a foundation and there are levels to this thing and there are walls and there's a roof and all of it calls upon the the visceral mental imagery that ancient Near Eastern Christians would have had as they would have seen the temple on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Even if they lived in Ephesus or out in the diaspora somewhere else, they would have occasionally traveled into the city to see that temple and to perform the temple rites before they were saved, if they were raised Jewish. So it's very vivid language that Paul is using for his audience. And then finally, Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that we ourselves are like stones that have come to life, living, breathing pieces of rock that are being built up as a spiritual house, as a temple, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And then third, and probably the most helpful for you and I, is the metaphor of a body. And this is the direction that we're going to go today. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we who are many, so there's many of us in this room, that because we have put our faith in Jesus, for those of us who have done that, that we're one body. We exist as organisms, cells or organs or tissues or muscles, all within one physical body. That's the word picture that Paul paints. In the book of Ephesians, he says that Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, that we are the body of Christ, not just a group of people who claim Jesus, but a living, breathing organism made up of lots of individual people with the intention that we would do God's will, and he himself is our Savior. And then finally, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that as in one body there are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so then we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So again, last week we looked at one of the most compelling teachings that Jesus gives us about the church, which he refers to as a new family of God. The temple language metaphor in the New Testament is probably really sharp commentary on what God had in mind all along when he first set up the portable temple, which we call the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Then he founded the temple under Solomon's reign. And then finally we have the arrival of Jesus, who explains that we are going to be a new temple inhabited by the Holy Spirit. All of that, I think, is really helpful, but you and I, most of us at least, were not raised as temple Jews. We didn't grow up in synagogue every Saturday, and so that's not maybe the most helpful metaphor for us, because we just don't really understand the nuances of what a temple is, or how you build one, or where the foundation should go, or what a cornerstone even means. But when Jesus said that anyone who lives to obey God the Father is his brother and his sister and his mother... He's saying that we who live to obey the Father are one body, and I think that is a helpful metaphor because we may not have a temple in town, but we all have a body. We all have fingers and toes. We all have different pieces of our body that we like that perform in the way that we wish they would. We have other parts of our body that we feel like we're constantly fighting against or that are always in pain or seem to get in the way of the function of the rest of the body. I would say that that's a pretty good metaphor for church. Don't take that the wrong way, but I, I think that's a pretty fair appraisal of about how we tend to get along. We're kind of like a big amoeba, and one of us gets a good idea, and so we stretch and pull this way, and then it takes a while for everybody else to kind of catch up and get there, and then we go, oh, we went too far, and so we stretch back the other direction, and we try to compensate. That's what pastoring's like. I think that's why a shepherd is a good analogy for what a pastor is, because sheep move fast. They rarely know where they're headed. They just kind of like, there's a sheep in front of me, and it's going, so I guess we're all going, and, and the shepherd's running around the edge, and anyway, so Jesus gives us, the Apostle Paul gives us, the Bible gives us the analogy of a body, and within that body, there are organs, there are functions that exist to preserve that body, to take care of it, to lead it, to make sure that it's healthy, to allow it to perform and do the job that it was intended to do. I think it is fair for us to say that Jesus cares very much about the church, Beginning here in Mark chapter 3 and on through the remaining 15 chapters that we will work through as a church, we will see Jesus again and again communicate that the value of the church is so high to him. Even though it's brand new, none of the people who are around him even know that they are a part of a church yet. But he's saying that the value of these people is so high that he would do things like die for them. That he would cast off a lot of the elements of his divinity in order to become a human, humbled to the, to the dirt for you and I. That he would go to the point that he would die on a cross, not just a simple death in old age that's a necessary evil because you're a human being, but being attacked and killed by people who were wrong and who wronged him at every level. He submitted himself to that because of what that was able to purchase him. You. You're the thing on the shelf that Jesus is paying for at the cash register with his blood. It's you. 
you the church, you his body, that's whom he cares most about. So what did he do? He sends the Holy Spirit to each of us, and the Spirit functions as a guide, as a helper, as one who empowers us to live out our role and responsibility as church members. But he didn't just send the Spirit. And so this is kind of our off-ramp from Mark chapter 3 into where we're going to go today. Jesus made special provision for the needs of local churches. He's gone out of his way to prepare a system and a structure such that local churches can be safe for people who are not safe anywhere else. Who, local churches can be strong. They can stand on what's true without being known for being aggressive or combative. That they can be full to the brim with people like you and me who are broken and wicked and still have some sense of familiar, familiarity, uh, family nature in play. That's not easy to do. Most of the places that you work, even maybe your own biological family, you step into that environment and your heart begins to race and you may feel least safe of all with those people. And Jesus is founding and building something new that's for people like you and I who haven't found what we're looking for anywhere else. We can find it in Christ and we can continue to find it in his church. So Jesus sets up this system where there are two offices within the body of the local church. There's an office that leads the body there's an office that feeds the body, an office that protects, and, and then there's another office that serves and supports and unites. And these two offices, when they are filled with people who are qualified and trained correctly, are really the secret weapon of a church like this to give us the opportunity to do what's right, to stay strong, to be focused on the gospel truth, but also making an impact out in the world. Now, before we can have either of those two offices, God authorizes a church to make decisions for its own good. This is sort of the foundation of what it means to be a congregationally ruled church, which, from my impression, seems to be the model of the New Testament. We'll read in just a few minutes from Acts chapter 6, when the time came for a pretty important decision to be made by the very first church in the world, it wasn't the elders who had a powwow and then handed down a decision to the congregants. It was the body. Several thousand people had to agree on something. Can you imagine that? Uh, that they, and they didn't really even vote. They had to just reach a consensus. It wasn't that 51% decided and they moved forward. They were of one spirit. They were of one accord because of what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through them. He is the key to any of this working. So what does God do? God authorizes his church, a group of, in our case, covenant members, to get together and to decide to call themselves a local body. They do so for their own good and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, making decisions empowered by the Holy Spirit. This congregation is the body of Jesus in a local sense. Without a congregation who have been authorized by God to be the church, there can be neither office. There, there are no elders that exist without a church to appoint them first. If you ever meet somebody who says that they're sort of a freelance bishop, elder kind of authority figure in the church, but they don't have a home church and no group of people ever gave them that title, they're disqualified. I don't mean that in a mean way, but that's a dangerous person that you ought not open your life up to. Anybody who has authority to teach or preach or lead or protect must be given that authority that has to be vested in them by a local church only. This is the structure that God created. I'm not making this up just because I think this is a cool way to do church. This is what the Bible says. Without a congregation, there are no elders, there are no deacons, there's no staff, there are no programs, there's nothing. A church is not a building, a church is not an idea, a church is a group of people, people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. These people are authorized by God to appoint elders and to submit to elders. They also retain the right and the authority to remove elders as needed. The office of elder is the first of the two offices of the church as described in the New Testament. 
So this diagram that's on the screen is going to get busier and busier. I just want you to know this. If you've been here very long, you've seen me do this before. You don't have to write this down, but I think this could be helpful to you if you've ever wondered how exactly does our church work. Uh, feel free. I, I've tr what I've tried to do is match the color of the arrows to whatever group of people, or in this case, God has the white color, but whatever group of people is taking action. So you can follow the arrow, and the words that are italicized will tell you what that group does to the group that it points to. So for instance, God authorizes elders. Without God authorizing elders, there are no elders. And God authorizes a congregation, in our case, covenant members. Then those covenant members, because God has authorized the office of elders, those covenant members appoint and submit to and can also remove the individual people who hold that office. So God authorizes the office and then the congregation says, okay, God says we need these kinds of people. Where are they? Do we need to train them internally? Will God bring them along, mature believers from another church potentially? How do we do this? When a church is first planted, usually the mother church sends a group of people who can play the role of elder so that the church can be a functioning church right out of the gate. But you need both. There can't be elders just out there floating, five people calling themselves the rulers of a church that nobody else goes to. And a congregation without leadership is bound and determined to fail. A church that does not have elders, maybe another church you've been a part of has used the word pastor. Maybe they've leaned on their paid staff to play this role. I think that's fine if a church decides to do it that way. But somebody needs to be biblically qualified according to the standards in the New Testament to play the role of elder or else the church will eventually cannibalize itself. It will tear itself in half or it will eat itself alive. Shepherds help, excuse me, elders help shepherd the flock, which is again another metaphor for the church, but they only do that under the head shepherd who is himself Jesus. So even me, this name tag says lead pastor on it that I'm wearing. All that means is of our elders, I tend to spend the most time every week working on the ministry needs of the church. And I preach 45 times a year. But I don't have more power. I don't get two votes among the other elders. I don't, I'm not in charge of the elders. I'm not their boss. I don't function as their chairman. We work together as peers. It is Jesus who decides where and when and what this church will do. And he impresses those things upon our elders, and we pray, and then we try to present them to you. But because we don't rule, all we do is lead, you have to tell us yes or no. Do you want to go that way? Do you think that is right or wrong? What is the Spirit of God saying to you? And so we do. We vote congregationally to make those decisions. Elders only have authority to lead if a body of believers is present to acknowledge their qualifications and their capacity and then appoint them. Now, once they've been appointed by the members, the elders are authorized by God to hold their office and fulfill its obligations back to the members, uh, which means that they lead and they teach and they protect and they equip. These are the responsibilities that the New Testament says fall in the lap of biblically qualified men who hold the office of elder. Elders lead the church forward and they provide authorized authority from God for the sake of hard things like discipline, decision making, uh, setting the theological boundaries around the church. What will we believe about this thing or that thing, be it baptism or who can serve in what role or what should a church use its money for, things like that. Elders provide guidance and insight and protection around those things so that one new member with an idea of how they want to change and, and, and drag the church a new direction can't just immediately do that. The elders vet those people, they listen to them, they hear them out, they protect and defend the decisions that have been made so there can be consistency. You can almost think of them as the congregation ad interim, if you know what that means. When the congregation can't meet, the elders do their level best to execute the will of the congregation on behalf of the church body. As elders lead, however, they come across all kinds of needs from within the church. 
Things like financial needs, sickness that props up interpersonal conflict, believe it or not. You guys don't always get along with each other. I don't know if you knew that or not. Misunderstandings. The list can go on and on and on. And because elders have a specific and very necessary function in the life of the local church, it's not good, believe this or not, it's not good for a body of elders to spend all of their time working on the physical needs of the congregation. And that may be shocking to you. You may say, how dare you? Are you telling me we have a group of pastors who are too good to get their hands dirty and work with the church? No, not at all. I'm telling you that you have a group of very limited men who are all going to die someday and are trying to use their hours as wisely as possible to do the thing that they have uniquely been charged and called to do, which is to lead and to teach and to protect and to equip. So what do you do with those needs? Where do they go? Well, in a lot of churches where there's one solo pastor at the top and nobody has any idea what anybody else is supposed to do, those needs go unmet. You hear a lot about meeting those needs from the pulpit in a church like that, but there's no group of people who've been commissioned or tasked with with taking real action to reach a point where those things finally resolve. We believe that that's possible, that God would will us to do that, to participate in helping people move forward by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be changed, to have the problems in their lives either diminish or eventually go away. So this brings us to the second office of the local church, which is the office of deacons. I told you it's going to get a little bit busy here, so just one more slide if you're trying to fit things in on your piece of paper. Deacons are appointed in the same way that elders are appointed by the members of a local church, and so that that, um, left-to-right red arrow that says appoint and submit and remove, that's also true in a sense for the relationship between the covenant members and the deacons. Now, covenant members don't submit to deacons for teaching. They don't submit to deacons for leadership, but they do submit to deacons in the sense that if the members are unwilling to open up their lives to the deacons, the deacons cannot be helpful. They will not be able to do their job. Because the only other way to find out someone has a problem is to wait until it makes it to us through the gossip mill. And by then, we don't trust it. That's not how we want to make decisions at all. So there is an element of a local church appointing deacons. You guys voted and did that two weeks ago but also submitting to them and their decisions and trying to help them where you see weaknesses in their processes or in their perspective, elevating issues to them that you think may have gotten a little bit too big for people to handle one-on-one, or just asking for help, asking to be nearby, asking to visit those who may be homebound and would never reach out for help on their own. The deacons exist to serve. That is their function. They serve the covenant members, they serve the needs of the members, they steward the resources of the church, they protect the unity of the individual people and the body at large, because again, our local churches are bodies, and oftentimes they're pulling different directions, and people get their feelings hurt based on misunderstandings. Deacons exist as shock absorbers in those situations, deputized by the elders to sit and spend time listening and having empathy for people that are going through really hard things and serving the needs as best they can to try to bring those people back to the center where they're focused on the gospel and working for the common good of the church. Now, they're not in authority in the same way that elders are. However, deacons and elders retain their membership at the church. So when it comes time for the congregation at large to make a decision, both deacons and elders receive one individual vote each, just like every covenant member in good standing. And so in that sense, we never lose our our office of member, but we gain a little bit more responsibility depending on how God has called us and how you, the church, choose to appoint us. The deacons are led by the elders mostly out of necessity because in most churches, 
when people have a problem, they bring it to the elders because the elders are their pastors. Uh, oftentimes problems come to me directly because I'm the voice that you hear from most frequently on Sunday mornings here at True North. And that's okay. That's not a problem. But I praise God for a group of deacons that I can go to immediately and say, I need help. I need your attention. I need your brain power. We need your prayers. This is a problem that's too big for me, one person, to handle, especially when four or five or 10 or 20 of those problems come my way in a given week. The deacons exist to serve the needs of the local church, and, and those needs often, even though they're brought to elders, end up being outsourced to the deacons so that they can perform those things. Okay, so what does that have to do with today and these four empty chairs on stage? Well, two weeks ago, we appointed four new deacons, and those deacons submitted themselves to what we call public candidacy. That means that their names were known to all of you for about 90 days. You had chances to get to know them personally, take them out to coffee, have them over for dinner. You had lots of opportunities to question and challenge their qualifications. We even had a question and answer session a number of weeks ago where you were able to hear testimonies and find out more about them so that you could vote in confidence, either yes or no, on whether it was your perspective that the Holy Spirit intended for those people to become deacons here at True North Church. We voted on those people two weeks ago, and all of them received well, 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 more than enough votes to be appointed. And so today what we get to do is ordain them. Now, I want to put a pin in that for a second and explain to you what ordination means. There are a lot of different kinds of churches in the world. You have probably been to some of them that are different from this church in many ways. Ordination is something that we interpret out of the New Testament, but there is no recipe in the Bible. There is no one right way, and therefore, there are probably several right ways that all kind of exist within this larger, more grace-oriented perspective that says that as long as we're doing our best and we're not going against God's word, that we're okay, and that the intention is to give us an opportunity to participate. So what this morning is going to look like, the rest of our time together, is I'm going to speak to the deacon candidates, not yet, but in a minute, I'm going to invite them to come up and sit, and they're going to look at you while I talk about them. And it's going to be unbelievably uncomfortable for all four of them. Some of them are even going to be thinking to themselves, I never should have said yes. I shouldn't have done this. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be looked at like this. But because they're deacons, it should be one of the very last times that they ever have to stand up in front of all of you because starting today, they go behind the scenes and begin to serve in ways that you would never know. The reason that I want them to come and sit up here is not because we think that they're better than you. It's because you need to know who these people are. If they exist to serve you and you don't even know what they look like, then we're going to become that church naturally that cannibalizes itself. We're going to not reach out for help when we, when we need help. We're not going to know where the resources are when we need resources. We're not going to know who can come and mediate a conversation between me and somebody in my life group who keeps offending me so bad, and I think they have no idea, but it makes me so mad that I don't think I can even talk to them without exploding. There are all kinds of these situations every week in our church, and because God knew that would happen, and because he cares about you, he has led us to appoint these people, and they will play a role to help in those areas, but only if you involve them. The elders cannot send the deacons out often enough to do enough to justify them existing. The members have to be willing to ask for help and to submit the real true needs of their lives, of their hearts and their minds to these men and women so that they can help you by serving you in the way that God intended. So I'm gonna charge the deacons in your presence and then we're going to have a chance at the end to pray over all of them, and that's all ordination is. You've already technically ordained these guys because you voted on them. That's all ordination means if you trace it back to its original meaning. What we're going to do today is ceremonial and meaningful, 
Because we want these deacons to remember when they're in the car on their way to somebody's house to confront them about the way that they're attacking everybody at Bible study all the time and they're scared to death to have that conversation, we want them to remember that all of you sat in this room and looked them in the eye and said, this is good and right and we need you to do this. We need your help. We need you to serve us. So we want to empower and charge them and that's it. So at this point, I'm going to ask our four new deacons to come forward and grab a seat on the stage. If we can have Caleb and Sarah on this side and Kyle and Josiah on that side, they're going to sit and you guys just make as much eye contact as you want with them. This is your chance. Just stare right through their soul and pray for them as we go and try to listen at the same time. Can you guys multitask that level? I think we can do it. Okay. So let's start with a definition. Deacon comes from a Greek word, diakonos. Can you say diakonos? That was pretty good. I only asked you to do that like four times a year, so that I burned one of my four right there. Diakonos is a word that existed before the Bible was written. So maybe you know this, maybe you don't. There are words that exist in the Bible that are kind of made up or, or they're, um, they're crossbred with other words in order to create a uniquely Christian word or a uniquely Christian phrase. Diakonos is not one of those. Diakonos is a word that simply means a servant. Literally, the kind of person that you keep in your big mansion when you're wealthy who does whatever you say without talking back. That's the idea, okay? Now, in this case, you are the wealthy people who live in the mansion, the house of God, and these are your servants. So don't abuse them, but understand that the intention from the beginning is that there be somebody who could get down off their high horse enough to actually serve the real needs of the church. And that's what these, these men and this woman and the rest of our deacon team exist to do. The word diakonos is used in the Bible as both a noun and a verb, so we can say that they are deacons or they are diakonos, but that they also deacon, that they spend their time literally deaconing the church. Uh, and this is why if you look at the slide, you see that two-way arrow back and forth. You see that covenant members appoint them, but that deacons serve back to the local churches. If you're willing and you have a Bible open in front of you, I would appreciate if you'd go with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at this passage and then one more passage from Timothy, and then we'll pray for these guys and be done this morning. In the sixth chapter of Acts, the very first church in the whole world, uh, the church at Jerusalem, there was conflict. People did not get along. They did not agree with each other. Some people felt overlooked, I think for good reason, and others thought that some people within the church were being treated with special favor, uh, favoritism. Now, a group of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, so wrap your mind around that, They're, they were born Jewish people in, in Israel, they are now following Jesus, but they speak Greek, so they're kind of considered traitors to the rest of the Jewish people because they've gone the way of Rome instead of staying true to their homeland and their home language. Those people were offended by the Aramaic-speaking Jews, because the earliest church services were, were bilingual and often multicultural, they're mad that the people who speak Hebrew seem to be getting special attention from the apostles, who are also ethnically Hebrew, whereas those that speak Greek seem to not be getting taken care of very well. You can imagine in a church service like this, if about 40% of you spoke Spanish, and I only preached in English every week, there would be times where our slides, our announcements, our bulletin, even the sermon would go over your head. And even if we tried to translate that and interpret it in real time, you would probably feel a little bit like a second-class citizen because when it came time to sign up for events or get in line for a meal, you wouldn't know what to do until everybody else had already moved. And so in the same way, the Hellenistic Greek Christians are feeling looked over by this new church in Jerusalem, like they're not being taken care of. Specifically, their widows and their orphans are not being fed by the church. And this is a commitment that the early church made to its members, that anybody who was a dependent and lost the person who was supposed to be taking care of them, a husband, a father, parents that they could always get a meal, that they could always find a bed when the local church 
met. So that's kind of the birthplace of the conflict. The Greek Jews feel ignored at the group mealtimes. They think that the Hebrew Jews are playing favorites. So part of the issue is language. Part of the issue is culture. Some of it's class. A fair bit of it is political, which means that churches have always been the same. Uh, And so the apostles come up with a solution. The apostles are sort of the prototype for elders because there aren't many local churches, and therefore we don't need many groups of elders yet at this point in history. We just need the apostles because there's only one church, but that's going to change. So they decide that they're going to delegate this issue, this problem, to a new group, a new office that at this point in church history does not exist yet. Let's read about how this goes down in verse 2 of Acts chapter 6. And the 12, who are the apostles, you remember two or three weeks ago, we talked about those 12, right? Minus bad Judas, we know what he did. So there's a new guy that took his place. But the other 11 we're familiar with, they get together the full number of the disciples in Jerusalem. Several thousand people based on what we read in Acts chapter two and three. The first church was a mega church. They get everybody together, probably in some town square in Jerusalem, and they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now that sounds a little bit snooty, right? A little bit cocky, a little bit full of themselves, but it's not. It demonstrates that they understand the unique calling on their lives. They're not better than anybody else. We live in this weird culture where pastors become celebrities. That has not been the case most of church history, and I think pretty soon it won't be the case again, which is good. But in this day and age, these guys are just church members who have a special responsibility to teach what Jesus taught when he was on the earth. And they're saying, if we spend all of our times refilling your soup bowl, we're never going to study the scrolls, and we're not going to be ready to teach when it's time. And it's good that you eat soup when you're here, but it's best that you hear the gospel every time that you're here. So that's what we have to focus on. That's what they mean. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, they're speaking to Christians. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute who are themselves full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will then appoint to this duty, we being all of them collectively. But we ourselves, the elders, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, what those apostles said to the crowd pleased them, and they chose these people. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who shows up again a little bit later in Acts as one of the first martyrs who's killed for his faith. Philip, not the Philip who was the disciple, the new Philip who ends up baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, a man named Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch, which is kind of important because as an Antioch Christian, he probably speaks Greek and therefore can help bridge this gap between the Hellenistic Jews and the Jews that only speak Aramaic. A little wrinkle there for you that's kind of interesting. Verse 6. These the people set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them, and the word of God did what? It did what it always does when the church is healthy. It continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. And that matters because the priests are the hardest people to convert because their whole career and all of their life and identity is wrapped up in Old Testament Judaism. And for them to repent and follow Jesus is as close to probably a Mormon or a Muslim following Jesus today. They would have lost their family, their income, their status, even their name probably would have had to have been changed. And why? Because the deacons could serve the church so the elders could teach the church and the church could be what it was supposed to be. And God used that to save the least likely hardest people that existed. This is the story of the birthplace of the office of deacons. God gave his church both shepherds, elders, and servants, deacons. It's not glamorous, but the spitting image of the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth is those two things. All Jesus did was lead and teach and serve people. Now, he had the capacity to do both. We don't. We're limited. And so he gives us offices that work in conjunction with each other, but both exist in light of and are modeled after the ministry, the life of Jesus. 
Years later, after Paul the Apostle was saved and given charge over church planting in the ancient Near Eastern world, he wrote letters to a man who was his apprentice named Timothy. And in the first letter to Timothy, he describes the character and the qualifications of a deacon. He says deacons must be dignified. They must not be insincere. They must not be prone to drink much wine, nor can they be greedy for money. But they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love that phrase. You could spend weeks in that phrase of what that means. What is the mystery of the faith? Verse 10. There must also, excuse me, these must also first be tested, and then you can have them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Then he gives instructions for women, female deacons. Women must likewise be dignified. They must not be malicious gossips, but they must be temperate and faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's the Bible's standard for the character of a deacon. And that's the standard that these deacons have been held to. They have been vetted and interviewed by the deacons and the elders, some of them more than once, to an extent that I think most of you would be surprised about, to make sure that they are as qualified as possible. If they were not, we would have never presented them to you as candidates, and I believe that you agree with those qualifications because you have also voted in favor of appointing them as deacons. This standard from the Bible is the standard that we have seen lived out in the lives of these four people. It's the same standard that you affirmed when you appointed them two weeks ago. So I want to tell you what you should expect from your deacons, and then we're going to charge them to serve you well so that you can love them and you can uphold them in prayer and you can encourage them in return. Because without your participation, there's very little for them to do, and they will dry up very quickly. In function, as I told you, deacons are deputies of the elders. They become commissioned with projects and tasks that reinforce the structural integrity of the body, the church. So that looks like feeding the hungry among us, caring for those who are isolated by age or by disease or death of a spouse. It looks like creatively addressing the emergent physical needs of a growing body like ours, but always doing that according to the model in Acts 6 and without compromising the standards of 1 Timothy 3. So what will your deacons do? Your deacons will excuse me, protect and promote church unity. They'll do that by preserving unity among us when it is threatened or when unity is called into question. In this way, deacons are like the shocks of the church. They absorb the holes and the hills in the road as we follow Jesus along. And this comes through to us in the form of a spirit of gentleness in each of their lives, in a spirit of flexibility, in the ability to stand on conviction without becoming combative, which is a uniquely Christian skill set. Deacons are many things, but they can never be less than members in good standing, tested and approved by you, the local church. And today you have an opportunity as members of True North to participate in the future ministry of these individuals and this local church. So I have one more thing I want to say, but I'm almost done. So I'm going to invite my wife, Andy Coleman, up and Audrey Preston, two of our deacons. You saw them today in the video. And uh, they're going to come and pray over these new deacons in just a second. And we're going to give you a chance to pray where you're sitting as well. But I'll remind you, deacons, of your example, and I'll charge you with this. The ultimate model for the deacons of True North Church is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, who is our rabbi, our teacher, our example, and our model. Jesus, who is the true vine in whom we abide. Jesus, who was the suffering servant of all. Jesus, who is the God who laid down his life for his friends and his enemies. So deacons, we commission you now by Jesus' example and in Jesus' name to continue to do Jesus' work among us. Wicked, broken, filthy people. Jesus, who, as our example, left heaven when he could have chosen to stay there and who stayed on the cross when he could have chosen to leave. 
So deacons, as you serve the body of Christ, may you always be found touching unclean hands and washing filthy feet in the same way that our Lord did. May you always be found serving ungrateful sinners and giving away your life for the ones whom you love and who love you. So church, that's our charge to these individuals, that they would serve us, that they would know us, and that they would help protect this amazing thing that God has done here in this local church. We believe that he will do his part. We will pray that they will do their part as well. So Audrey, if you would like to pray for our first two new deacons, please go ahead. Lord, thank you for Sarah, and thank you for how she loves people well. Loving people well is often a gift that comes through trials, which requires one to depend thoroughly on your perfect love. Strengthen Sarah and confirm in her mind exactly how you see her and exactly how you love her, because in taking church office, the devil always attempts to sow doubt and lies about one's qualifications. So we ask that you chase away all of the doubts that she may be experiencing and free her to serve in this role that you have called her with confidence. And Lord, thank you for Caleb. Thank you for the wisdom and maturity that you have given him and for his faithfulness in serving. Bless his faithfulness and allow it to deepen throughout the years. Give Caleb the courage to lean into exactly who you have created him to be as he fills this office. Help him to resist the urge to try to fill this role as someone else might. Instead, to fill it as his own unique self. Bless Caleb with the vigilance to protect the time and the space for the presence of God in his life in all of the changes and obstacles that will come in life. Father God, we just come before you today humbled, Lord, that you would bring together this body of Christ, this, this church, Lord. We thank you that we get to humbly serve you, Lord. We thank you that you have woven us together as family. We thank you, God, for the servant leaders that you have brought up in our congregation. And God, um, we thank you for Kyle and Josiah, who are that. Um, we thank you, Lord, for Josiah's um, obedience, Lord, and just serving behind the scenes for so long, Lord. He's been doing that since the merger, Lord, and we're just so thankful even before that, God. We thank you that he um, took it upon himself to really just get to know every single new person that came into this door to be a part of the transition, Lord. He cares so much about your people, and we see it all the time. We thank you for that. And God, thank you for Kyle, who has remained steady and steadfast and faithful through so many transitions that True North has had, God. Um, we thank you for his love for the church, but specifically this church, Lord. He is remained faithful, and we're so thankful. And God, I just pray that you would um, just be with their families, protect them as they take on this new role in ministry, Lord. I pray that you would just give them humility and remind them that um, as they serve, Lord, they would not be doing it for any kind of praise, Lord. So much of what they do will be behind the scenes, God. But I pray that you would just help them remember that your glory is the goal and it is the reward. Um, and so I pray that you would just Humble them in that way, Lord. Um, protect them. Um, unify us as a deacon team and unify our church as a deacon body, Lord, or as a church body, Lord. And I just pray that you would continue to strengthen us to unify, um, steward, and serve the church well. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, Andy.
And thank you, Kyle and Josiah, Caleb and Sarah. If you guys would like to, you can, well, actually, even if you wouldn't like to, we'd like you to go back to your seats, please. Uh, sure, you've had enough stage time probably for your whole entire life. Uh, and I appreciate you guys being willing to do that. So church, I invite you to stand if you'd like to. We're going to finish our worship service this morning in song, as we often do. Uh, I'll be down front here facing you guys. If you would like somebody to pray for you, I would love to do that today, to hear what's on your heart, to pray for you or someone who you love. If you'd like to talk to somebody about first steps to following Jesus, I'd love to have that conversation with you as well. And another one of our elders, our newest elder, Jim Singleton, will be in the back of the room right underneath the balcony and would love to do the same, just to hear your heart, to pray with you, to talk to you about what it looks like to